Well, this morning, we are in our second to last week of our series from the book of Revelation, uh, chapters 1 through 3. We've been going through this series called Dear Church, and, and uh, has it been good? Has it been hopeful? I, I certainly hope that it has. And today, we finally get to a city that we recognize, <laughs> a city that many of us have been to, right? It's the city of Philadelphia. It's only four hours away from here. In fact, July 4th, 19, uh, 2019, my family and I, we all, and my mom and, and Bill and my uh, sister's family, we all went down, and Philadelphia is a fun place to be on the 4th of July. A little scary at night, but, but a fun place to be during the day. And uh, we really enjoyed ourselves. There we are by the Liberty Bell. I know Philadelphia gets a bad rap, especially their sports teams and the fans of their sports teams. And, and I've seen that firsthand because I've been to some Eagles games. I know it can be a little rough. But I actually really enjoy the city of Philadelphia. Behind New York and Boston, it's probably my favorite city to go hang out in. And, uh, of course, you know, Philly is known for their cheesesteaks. And, and, and if you've been to Philly for a cheesesteak, you know it is pretty, it's a pretty special thing. I'm a Tony Luke's guy. Um, I know there's a lot of arguments about the best place. I like Tony Luke's, partly because there's actually, like, a parking uh, lot where you can park and you don't have to find street parking. Uh, Philly also is home to my favorite ice cream shop called Franklin Fountain. And my favorite food market, I, I love the Reading Terminal food market. I prefer it to Chelsea Market and even Faneuil Hall in Boston. I just love it so much and really enjoy being in Philadelphia. Now, I say all that, and it doesn't really mean anything because that's not the city we're talking about this morning. Uh, Paul, or John is not writing to the Philadelphia in Pennsylvania, of course. He's writing to a very different city. But what's interesting is that if last week when we looked at the church in Sardis, it was kind of a tough week because Jesus had nothing good to say to them. It was no commendations, it was only rebukes. And now we get to the church in Philadelphia, and it's no rebukes, it's all good. So this is a, this is a better feeling week, hopefully, than last week. And we're going to look together in Revelation chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. This letter starts the same way all the letters started. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens... And no one will shut, and who shuts, and no one will open. I know your works. And this is usually when Jesus would say, I know your works, but. but that's not what he does here. He says, I know your works, and behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. One of my great surprises this past week, or these past couple weeks, has been um, the response to our Read Together effort as a church. There's over 100 of you that are on version reading through the New Testament in 90 days together. And I got to say, it's one of my favorite moments every day is going in there and seeing the comments and reading the takeaways. And, and I know many of you didn't have that app before, and I think that's wonderful that you're using it now and that you're connected that way. And I see that many of you are becoming friends on there and connecting to each other. And and uh, I, I love reading the comments because there's some people in there who admittedly are reading Matthew for the first time ever. 
And I love the fresh perspective they bring and the eyes that they have on the text that I wouldn't have any longer as someone who's read it multiple times. And it's just, I hope you're blessed if you're in it. And I'm really excited by the engagement. I believe God is blessing it. But when we read Scripture, what sort of questions should we be asking? And I want to just Because I'm realizing so many people in our church are really kind of new to reading Scripture on their own. I want to give you, just as we look at this text, two questions I think we always have to ask no matter what passage we're reading, no matter where it's in the Bible, no matter what the genre of Scripture is. The two questions I always ask, and they have to be in this order, is number one, what does this passage teach me about God? That is the most important question to ask about any passage of Scripture. And if you skip that question, you're going to mess up your interpretation of the passage. Because Scripture is not given to us primarily to reveal something about ourselves, although it does that, but it was given to us primarily to teach us about God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And so anytime I read a passage and anytime I begin to prepare a study to teach you, I always start with the question, what does this passage teach me about God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, their nature, their character, their word, who they are? And until you've answered that question, don't move on in your study. You have to understand that. And then the second question is this. In the light of that, how should I live? In the light of who God is, how do I live? How do I respond? And so we're going to kind of look at this this morning that way, this passage in Revelation 3. And what does this passage reveal to us about Jesus? And the first thing is this, is that it teaches us what Jesus is doing for us. And one of the themes that comes across in this letter to the church in Philadelphia is this theme of the open door. Did you hear it multiple times? Jesus introduced himself as the one who had the key of David, who what he opened, no one could shut, and what he shut, no one could open. And then he said to the church in Philadelphia, I know your works. He says, behold, I have opened a door for you, and no one can close it. And when I read that this week, my spirit got excited. I was like, what is that about? What does that mean? That Jesus would open a door for his church that no one can close. This church in Philadelphia, one of the things they were really struggling with was you know, the Jewish culture, the Jewish people, and the Jewish synagogue, had a, they were a recognized religion under Roman rule. So even though the Romans didn't necessarily care for the Jews, they recognized them as an actual religion. And because they were in the synagogue and under the protection and coverage of being a practicing Jew, they were not persecuted or punished in some ways that other people were when they would not engage in imperial cult worship. When they wouldn't worship the emperor, they would say, well, I'm a Jew, and I'm a practicing Jew. And there was a level of protection to the Jews at this time in history, uh, protecting them from Roman oversight over religion. Uh, I guess a version of freedom of religion, but nothing like what we experience in our country. And so what happened, though, is that as Jews began to convert to Christianity and began to leave behind some of the traditions and practices of the Jewish synagogue, the, the, the Jewish leaders who Jesus calls out, he calls it a synagogue of Satan. I mean, that's about as harsh as Jesus could be there, I think. He calls them out. What they're doing is, is that they are, the Christians are now exposed to dangers that they weren't previously exposed to because they're, they're, they're part of this sort of like, well, one of the commentaries says it this way. Jews received a special exemption from Rome, but the same exemption was not extended to Christianity because it was a new movement. It was a strange movement. And now Christians are exposed to persecution from the state. And the doors to protection under the name of a Jewish synagogue or under the name of the Jewish faith was now close to them. And so the the Christians in Philadelphia find themselves on the outside of a door that they used to be inside on. And now their lives are not as stable and not as protected. 
The doors of Jewish community and protection have been closed to them. In fact, you know that Christians, uh, very early on, they were referred to as atheists because nobody had a framework for what they were actually saying. They understood the idea of many gods. They, under, they understood the idea uh, of one God. But this, what the, what the Jews were saying, or sorry, what the Christians were saying, got them labeled as atheists because no one could have a framework for them. And so this door has been closed to them of this community and safety. And into their world, Jesus says, I have set before you an open door. And that word set in the Greek means a promised, to give a promised gift. We have a lot of birthdays in our house right now. This past Thursday, our little Madeline turned seven years old. And uh, this upcoming Thursday, Caroline will turn 10. And they know that we are going to set before them certain things on their birthday. Because we give them the gifts that we said, we're going to give you something on your birthday. And when Jesus says, I have set before you an open door, he's saying, I'm going to give you what I've promised to give you. And this open door can represent several things. It can represent the open door of salvation. That Jesus Christ himself is the door, that he is the way in, that he is the open way to the Father. It also can represent the open door of provision, that Jesus opens the door of heaven and pours out blessings on his children and on his people. But most likely what it primarily means here is it's an open door for ministry, for effective ministry. And here's what Jesus is saying to Philadelphia. I know you feel like you're on the outside of something that you used to be on the inside of, but I'm going to open something up for you that's going to bear so much fruit. I have open doors of ministry for you. And what does this mean for you and me? I want us just to reflect on three thoughts real quick. Number one, Jesus still opens doors. I know some of you have been praying for a long time for someone's, the door of someone's heart to be open to the gospel. Jesus still opens doors. Keep praying. Some of you are praying for an open door of a better diagnosis. Jesus still opens doors. Some of you are praying that God would open up a door to restore a relationship that is falling apart. Jesus is still in the business of opening doors. Some of you are praying for future opportunity at your workplace or new jobs or new opportunities. Jesus still opens doors, but ultimately the doors that he opens are not just to get us better things or to get us into better places. We'll see in the next point that what Jesus does in us is more important than what Jesus will do for us. And so many times the doors that Jesus opens require something of us, right? I can hold the door open for you, but if you don't walk through, then it doesn't, it's not worth anything. It has no value to you. And so Jesus will open doors for us, but the question is, will we walk through the doors that Jesus opens for us? What if it's a door into suffering? What if it's a door into sorrow? What if it's a door into a challenging conversation? What if it's a door to repentance? He's opening those doors too. The question is, are we willing to walk through these doors that he opens for us? See, we look at things that seem closed, but what's a problem for us is never a problem for Jesus. <laughs> what he opens, no one closes. What he closes, no one opens. The second thing this means is that you and I don't have to exhaust ourselves trying to force doors open. We can rest in the fact that he opens doors. See, we've read it. No one can open what God has closed, and no one has closed what God can open. And that's true for you and for me. So we don't have to run around trying to force doors open. We can say, God, give me eyes to see the doors that you're opening. Wouldn't it be such e so much easier in life if you were walking through doors already opened for you than putting your head down like many of us do and trying to run through doors that God has closed, and you'll never open them, no matter how many times you run into them. And then the third thing that I want us to realize is that open doors are everywhere. They're everywhere. Our vision statement here at Trinity is that we would see gospel transformation, which means radical spiritual and social change in our hearts and in our community, gospel transformation in every area of our lives. We've got lots of areas in our lives, don't we? From our heart to our emotions to our mental to our physical to our spiritual to relational. 
to, to all kinds of things. See, gospel transformation in every area of our lives, but also in every life in our area. What God does in us, what he does to us, he wants to do through us, right? And so that's what our prayer is, is that we would see change, real heart change by the gospel in every life in our area. Now, how do we define the word area? It's wherever God sends you. It's wherever you have influence. It's wherever you have reach. It's your workplace, students. It's your school. It's your sports teams. It's the clubs that you're a part of. It's the neighborhoods that you lived in. And so if you're wondering, well, where are the doors that God has opened for me, Pastor David? You're talking about doors that have been opened. All I feel like there are closed doors. Well, anywhere where you're interacting with people, God's opening a door for ministry for you. Anywhere. Jesus tells this unforgettable story called the Good Samaritan. And in this story, he redefines what it means to be a neighbor. And what he says is this, neighbor is not defined by proximity only. You know, sometimes people are like, what, what's happening on the other side of the world? What does it matter to me? Who cares? Jesus says that's the wrong heart attitude. Neighbor is not defined by proximity. Neighbor is not defined by commonality. I only help people who have things in common with me. Neighbor is defined by opportunity. And if you have the opportunity to help someone, that person immediately becomes your neighbor. And that's the way Jesus sees it. And so anytime you have the opportunity to bless someone, serve someone, encourage someone, say something kind to someone, lift someone up, that's an open door. Walk through it. And let me just pause and bring this home literally. A lot of times the open doors that we miss are in our own homes, right? The opportunity to bless one another, our spouses, our children. We take for granted those who are around us the most. We're all guilty of this. But those are open doors that Jesus has. Jesus, if you're married to someone, Jesus, open that door for you. I'm looking at you this morning. You didn't open that door for yourself. Jesus opened that door for you, and he got you into that door. And now there's an open door of ministry every day to bless that person and encourage that person. I was listening to a podcast this past week by a woman who just wrote a book on marriage, and she said that researchers have shown that the healthiest marriages have a ratio of, when it comes to how they talk to each other, husband and wife, a ratio of five positive encouraging things to every one negative complaining thing. And I turned it right off. (laughs) I don't know how you feel when you hear that, but I felt a little bit convicted. I felt like it smacked me a little bit. And I thought, what would it look like for all of us to see the way we speak to our spouses and our children as an open door that Jesus has opened for us, a ministry, and we begin to speak life. This is open doors are everywhere. So how do we pray? Three things. Pray, God, open and close doors to me. Number two, God, find me faithful to walk through the doors you're open. And three, help me to trust you with the closed doors. Okay. That's what Jesus is doing for us. He's opening and closing. What is Jesus doing in us? I love this next part of uh, this um, verse 9. Or sorry, no, this is not verse 9. Verse 8. He says, I know that you have but little power. That phrase really jumped out at me this week. That's not a compliment. <laughs> Nobody wants to be told that. But Jesus is reassuring them. See, remember what I already said? The Church of Philadelphia, they have no, they have no power. They're, they're a strange movement. Christianity is on the fringes of society. They have no access to political power. Nobody represents them. Uh, the emperor does not speak for them. The governors do not recognize them. They have no power. And, and what it could do is begin to cause them to think, well, how are we ever going to get anything done for the kingdom if we don't have earthly power? And one of the things that we read this morning in, and yesterday in our Read Together plan going through the book of Matthew is Jesus begins to redefine what it means to be great. 
in the kingdom. And he brings a child before his disciples and said, this is what it means to be great. Receive the kingdom as a child. And he talks about leaders. We read it this morning in our read together. Leaders who, Gentiles, who lord their authority over other people and flaunt their power. And one of the things that I think Jesus wants to do in us is remove from us this misunderstanding that if we just had more power in this world today, if we could just flex a little more, if we had the right people representing us, if we had more opportunities, if we had more this, that, and the other. And listen, I'm glad for people who represent the life of Jesus in every area of life, from business to sports to politics. We need more Christians, more Jesus lovers in all of those arenas. But ultimately, our hope is not that we get the right people in the right positions, because Jesus may look at us and say, I see you think you got a lot of power. I guess you don't need me. And historically, the church of Jesus Christ struggles the most when they have the most power. That's when the wheels come off. And if you look at the church around the world today and throughout history, the places where the church really does the work of the kingdom is where they have absolutely no access to power. And the reason why is because they realize their only hope is in Jesus Christ. And we have to be careful because what we see as an opportunity in our lives and in the advancement of Christianity, Jesus might see as an obstacle. We see earthly power as an opportunity to get our way. And Jesus might say, no, that's actually an obstacle to the kingdom because you're going to put your hope in the wrong things. You're going to direct your hearts towards the wrong things. And Jesus here is saying, you know, what we need most is not earthly power, not worldly power, but he says, he said in this verse, I know that you have but little power, and listen to what he says, and yet you've kept my word, and you have not denied my name. And he uses the negative there to actually emphasize the fact that they have confessed his name. And in my studies this week, the, the, the words that Jesus uses there, the verb that Jesus uses there, in the tense in which he says it, Jesus is not speaking theoretically or hypothetically. Jesus is remembering specific moments when the Christians in Philadelphia spoke out Jesus' word and confessed his name, even though they had no earthly power, no right to do so, they were willing to hold on to Jesus even when everything else seemed to be taken from them. And I know some of you, uh, some of us may look around our world, look around our country and feel like things are being taken from us. And, but the truth is, is that our real hope is not in the power that can be found out there, but in the life of Christ that can be found within us as we confess his name and we stay true to his word. That's what matters most. And one of the greatest dangers and distractions to Christians today is the chase for power. And I love that Jesus says, I know you have but a little power, but guess what? It's not a problem. In fact, this is good for you because what I'm doing in you is more important than what I can even give to you. Don't deny my name. Confess me. Trust in me above all else. Keep his word means believe in what he says above all else. And then verse 10, there's an interesting verse which uh, is a source of uh, controversy when it comes to how it's interpreted. Jesus says, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world. And so some people who interpret the book of Revelation through the filter of a pre-tribulation rapture, they look at this verse and they say, see, this is evidence, this is truth, that Jesus will take the church out and we won't go through the trial. And that is one valid interpretation of that text, but it's not the only interpretation of that text. Because when you actually study what that verb means to keep from and where else it's used in the New Testament, really what it means more than sort of a removal from is that in the midst of it, I will keep you steady. I will keep your heart. And I don't know for sure what this verse meant related to end times, but I know this, that sometimes Jesus walks us through storms. He doesn't always take the storm from us but he keeps us in the storm. 
We don't always need to miss out on storms. What we need is the right person in our boat when we go through the storm. Jesus is much more interested in what's happening in us than even what's happening around us. And how many of you can say the hard times in life have shaped you more than anything else? Your struggles and your difficulties and your challenges and the things that you would have chosen to skip past, when you look back, you realize that even though I still would not have necessarily chosen that, I can see how God purposed that for good in my life. And God, if he were to always keep us from the storm, and always pull us out of our trouble, we would never learn what it means to trust in him in the midst of the storm. And what Jesus wants more than us missing out on the storms of life is learning to trust him when they find us. And this is what's happening here. We have little power, but in the storm we have his word and we have his name. And then lastly this morning, what will Jesus do with us? What will Jesus do with us? And let's look at verse 12 again. It it reads this way. The one who conquers, I will make him or her a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I I will write on him the name of my God. This is really cool imagery. Jesus says, the one who endures to the end, the one who conquers, I'm going to make you a pillar in my temple, and I'm going to write the name of God on you. What this means, by the way, you know, think about what this meant. Think about how this resonated with people who had literally been cast out of the synagogue, who couldn't go in anymore because of their faith. They're on the outside of a community and a society and a faith that many of them had been a part of their entire lives. And to them, Jesus says, I'm not just going to get you back in. I'm going to make you a pillar in there. I'm going to establish you. And when Jesus says, I'm going to make you a pillar in the temple, what this first means is that believers will be immovable pillars in the temple. In Philadelphia, we know this from a, from a Greek philosopher named Strabo, was a city, they called it a city full of earthquakes. Philadelphia had many earthquakes through its history. And so this idea of pillars in the temple was not a foreign concept to them. They needed the sort of structure that would support their building so that when the earthquake came, it wouldn't fall. And what Jesus is saying when he says, I'm going to make you a pillar in the temple, he's simply saying that believers will be where God dwells. Because listen, when we get to the end of Revelation in chapter 21 and 22, in the new heavens and the new earth, there's no more temple because everything is the temple. God is the temple. And we are going to be with him. And so here's what Jesus is saying to his church. When it's all said and done and when everything is made new, you're going to be right in the presence of God. A pillar in the temple, secure and strong. The language of being a pillar in the temple means that believers are secure and that they will never be dislodged from the coming new creation. No enemy will ever be able to harm them or remove them from God's presence on that day. Someday we will be with him, and that will be the best thing about heaven. I was at a funeral yesterday up in Hudson Falls, a, a legend in the Assemblies of God named Brother B, Almond Bartholomew. He was a superintendent when we planted this church in 1986, and so many wonderful things were said about him, and so many things were said about the great reunion that he's now with his grandson and other people who have gone before him, and I think that's all true, but you know what? The best thing about heaven is not necessarily who's there other than Jesus. The best thing about heaven is that Jesus is there. And there's going to be so many other wonderful things too, reunited with our family, reunited with people that we've lost and that we've loved. But when we get to heaven, the very best thing is Jesus is there and we'll be with him forever and we'll be secure, a pillar in his temple. And then this, you know, I think in life sometimes we don't, let's be honest, we don't always feel like pillars, do we? Sometimes we feel like Jenga, 
You know, like if you just pull one more piece, this whole thing's coming down. You ever feel unsteady in your life and in your faith? Not as consistent with loving Jesus as you wish you were? Well, the promise of heaven means this. One day you're going to serve Jesus just like you always wish you had. For all eternity, you're going to serve Jesus the way you wish you had right now. And that inspires us to love him more. And the second thing here in closing, I'm going to have the band come up. We're going to sing a song. Jesus said, I'm going to write God's name on these pillars. Now, that's really cool. Because God's name reveals his character, who he is, that he's holy. And God's name belongs to him. And God's name is consecrated as holy. God's name is perfect. God's name is set apart. The last place that God's name should be found is on you and me. Because his name is holy, his name is consecrated, his name is perfect, and we are none of those things apart from Christ. And yet Jesus said, because you've endured and because of what I've done for you, what I'm doing in you and what I will do with you, you have the very name of God written on you. And what this means, by the way, is that Christians belong to God and are secure in the care of the one who wrote his name on them. I remember years ago, my friend stayed with us for a little while, and uh, he was very protective uh, as I was living at home still, and he, he was very protective of his food. So anytime he'd put food in the fridge, he'd write his name on it. Now, never mind the fact that he ate everyone else's food. <laughs> never mind the fact that we fed him for a year. But when he brought food, he wrote his name on it. And when you saw that name on it, it meant, number one, this belongs to him. And then number two, it meant, I'm going to eat it. No matter what it is, I'm eating it just to spite him. But when you write your name on something, you say, this is mine. And God has written his name on you. Jesus has written the name of the Father right on you. And I thought of the movie Toy Story. And in Toy Story, there's this cowboy named Woody who goes on these different adventures with his other toy buddies, with Buzz Lightyear and all the other ones. And they end up in all sorts of circumstances and all sorts of messes. And they end up almost being incinerated. And they end up getting caught by a bad child. And they end up in a store where they're going to be sold off. And in the worst moments of the movie, when Woody has lost his hope and lost his sense of, of a future and, and and who he is and where he's headed, he would just look at the bottom of his boot. And on the bottom of the boot was the child that loved him, that had just written his name out, Andy, his, his, his owner, Andy. And every time Woody would look at it, it remind him, I belong to Andy. And listen, when you're in your worst moment, when you're in your biggest struggle, when you're in the valley, when you're struggling with your faith, look at whose name has been written on you. God inscribes his name on those who belong to him. You belong to God. And whatever door he opens, no one can close. And whatever door he closes, no one can open. And you might feel like you have but little power, but the word is saying to us this morning, confess his name and stay true to his word. Endure, and one day you'll serve him the way you wish you always had. All things will be made new, and Jesus in heaven will lead us into ever-increasing joy where every day will be better than the one before. Let's pray together.